0: Thank you. Welcome to season eight of our Fixing Healthcare podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Corr, also host the popular New Books in Medicine podcast, and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For eighteen years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books *Mistreated*, *Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare*, and *Why We're Usually Wrong and Uncaring: How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients*. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. For the first episode of 2024, I thought it'd be interesting to get Robbie's opinion about the year which just concluded and the one that has just begun. With so much to cover, let's just dive in. Robbie, let's start by looking back. What would you say are two of the top healthcare news stories of 2023?
1: Jeremy, the first story is the explosion of generative AI led by ChatGPT. It was a tremendous success beyond what just about anyone expected. Generative AI tools scored the top percent of medical licensing exams. They bested doctors in making complex diagnoses and demonstrated empathy, many times greater than clinicians. Add to that the saga of Sam Altman as CEO. You may remember his board fired him, then hired two new CEOs. He was offered a job at Microsoft to run its research laboratory. That 90% of open AI's workers threatened to quit and Sam Walton was rehired. All of that in a total of five days. Finally, there was a massive debate on the risks of generative AI, creating an existential crisis for the world. Some people feared that generative AI would produce a world in which robots take over humanity, but others saw the big existential crisis as those things that are human-led And they saw opportunity for generative AI to reverse the climate change crisis that's happening around the globe and produce double-digit productivity increases potentially ending hunger and poverty as they currently exist the second major story of 2023 was the advances of the retail giants corporations and companies like amazon cbs and walmart and the advances they're making into Healthcare. We saw last year Amazon acquire One Medical, one of the nation's largest primary care groups, and CBS acquire another primary care group, Oak Street, and a home health service, Signify. And then Walmart signed a 10 year agreement with United Healthcare. Now, these are four of the nation's six largest companies on a revenue basis. When they move, the ground shakes, and they're moving into medicine with the intent not to supplement what's currently available, but to replace it completely.
0: What are some other positive stories from 2023?
1: Jeremy, another positive story was the expansion of the GLP-1 weight loss drugs, medications like Ozempic. Obesity is a massive health issue, with diabetes now impacting nearly one in three Americans. Obesity contributes to heart disease, cancer, and multiple other medical problems. Despite a range of efforts to help people shed the unwanted pounds, few have been successful. Interestingly, a study published in the Journal of Medicine in patients without diabetes showed that this class of drugs reduces cardiovascular risk beyond simply better managing blood sugar. The possibilities are massive for these medications. You know, we saw a similar impact of the statins decades in the past and other drugs which lowered blood lipids and the salutary impact they had on preventing heart attacks. Since then, in fact, we've seen a huge decrease in the frequency of patients dying from heart attacks, something that has yet to be matched in other parts of medical practice. But the difference between... These new drugs, the GLP-1 agents, and the statins, it's price. Statins today cost a few dollars a month each. In contrast, if every obese American were treated with these weight loss and diabetes treating medications, which are currently priced at $12,000 to $15,000 per year, it would add 1.3% trillion dollars annually in order to pay for them at the current prices for which they are sold. Of course, there would be about a $250 billion reduction in cost due to the avoided heart attacks and other medical problems that would result. But netting it out, the overall cost of healthcare would rise by 25%, a trillion dollars. And I don't see that as being tenable for the United States. A second positive story is that more than half of individuals eligible for Medicare have chosen a Medicare Advantage plan. There are challenges in this program, with capitated payments being made to insurers, but fee-for-service payments continuing to be provided to the doctors and hospitals delivering the care. But Medicare Advantage is a step in the right direction. Because of its design, insurance and health systems can offer services in limited geographic areas, usually at the county level, and that reduces what economists call barriers to entry, far lower than for traditional commercial insurance plans. Capitation is key to addressing medicine's biggest challenges. It aligns the incentives for doctors and patients. In capitation, both providers and patients do best chronic disease is prevented, complications from chronic diseases like heart attacks, strokes, and cancers are avoided, and medical errors are eliminated.
0: What was the biggest medical breakthrough when it comes to pharmaceuticals and technologies?
1: Jeremy, as we talked about on our podcast, Medicine the Truth, sickle cell disease is a terrible affliction that can't be effectively treated today. And in 2023, first the British government and then the FDA approved the use of a technology called CRISPR. This is the gene editing process that can reverse one of the variants of sickle cell anemia and sickle cell disease, as well as a second red blood cell problem called beta thalassemia. Listeners may remember when we talked about the CRISPR technique that what it does is alter tiny segments of a person's DNA down to the single gene level. We've known it could theoretically reverse inherited diseases. Now, that is a reality. About 100,000 Americans, mainly Black and Hispanic patients, have sickle cell disease. It produces intense, severe pain, and it occludes blood vessels, damaging kidneys and lungs. The abnormal genes lead to malformed red blood cells and they clog and block blood flow. With genetic alteration, this no longer happens. But of course, the treatment is incredibly complex and it's fraught with risk. Patients must first undergo intense chemotherapy to clear their bone marrow of all abnormal stem cells, which otherwise would go on to produce the same deformed red blood cells. Then the genes must be altered with the patient staying in the hospital for at least a month. Due to the high risk of infection and other complications following the high-dose chemotherapy which had been administered, only when a normal bone marrow has been created is it safe for the patient to leave isolation. As a consequence, the cost of this treatment, extremely high, is predicted to be in the two to three million dollar range per patient.
0: What were a couple of the negative things that happened in 2023?
1: Jeremy, life expectancy fell by two full years during COVID-19. And the expectations were that it would bounce back to pre-COVID levels once the pandemic ended. But that didn't happen in 2023. Coming out of the pandemic, the U.S. was not only last among pure nations in life expectancy, but a full five years behind many countries in Asia and Europe. And while several of them have now returned to, or are very close to their pre-pandemic numbers, The U.S. only went up half of our decline. As a result, we're now six years behind the countries at the top. The second big problem was that our maternal and infant mortality in 2023, which had already been the poorest among these wealthy industrialized nations, it became even worse, not better. As a result, women in the U.S. now die twice as often during and following childbirth than women in France, which is the second worst nation. And in the United States, women die 10 times more frequently than pregnant moms in Norway. How to save the lives of mothers and babies, that's pretty well established. They die when their bleeding becomes severe or their blood pressure rises excessively. These problems can be monitored, identified and addressed. We just do a poor job of accomplishing what should be standard particularly for African-American moms, and that is a stain on our nation.
0: Were there any other negative events in the year which just ended?
1: Unfortunately, Jeremy, there were quite a number. In fact, the list is quite long. In 2023, over 100,000 Americans died from drug overdoses. Rather than aggressively addressing this problem, as a nation, we continue to restrict treatments, which have been shown to be highly effective. There are medications available that can reduce deaths, and there are ways to make access to care easier, including expanded use of technology. And yet, we persist in making it difficult for providers to deliver the solutions that would save American lives. In 2023, suicides continue to rise and now exceed deaths from car accidents. Guns are a leading cause of death, both in suicide attempts and as a result of homicides. When it comes to guns, I don't understand why we can't find a compromise that protects people's ability to access guns, but also protects the lives of innocent people. If you need a license to drive a car and must take a test to obtain one, why not do the same for guns with educational programs focused on safety? Another factor that became even worse in 2023 and is predicted to be even worse in 2024 is that of climate warming. Once again, it's been the hottest year on record. and As temperatures rise, the negative health consequences grow. People die from excessive heat, particularly among the very old and very young. And finally, I was shocked in 2023 when I researched how many Americans were on Medicaid. This is a program designed to provide medical care to the extremely poor in the United States. You know, Jeremy, I might have estimated that 15% of people, or around 45 million Americans, would be on Medicaid, at most. Instead, it was more than double, over 90 million individuals. And for the richest nation in the world, this level of poverty, it's extreme. And it contributes to the poor health of our country. Research has shown that the social determinants of health these include socioeconomic status and where you live. These factors have three times the impact on longevity as the actual medical care patients receive. Unfortunately, all of these factors combine to make the future of our nation's health unlikely to improve in the year to come.
0: What gives you reason to have hope for positive change going into 2024?
1: Jeremy? I'll first give you a counterintuitive answer, then I'll give you a more direct one. The rate at which the problems are getting worse indicates that a crisis is coming. And that could be the type of challenge which jumpstarts our nation's healthcare change. Of course, you never can tell whether the response will be positive or problematic. At some point, insurers are going to find that the cost of fee service is so high that businesses can't afford the prices. And they'll discover that with the consolidation that is happening inside the hospital industry and through private equity, that they have little control over costs. When that happens, I hope they'll turn to capitation at the delivery system level to break the logjam. Doctors have more ability to restrain prices than they're demonstrating. They could check CT and MRI prices before sending a patient for a study, but they don't. You know, there's no difference in these studies when it comes to quality. And yet prices can be multiple times higher in some facilities than in others a mile or two apart. And they could find ways to minimize redundant testing, but they don't. The reason they don't is time when they can personally benefit from increased efficiency, I'm confident and optimistic that they will. And capitation accomplishes that. Patients will be the beneficiaries from the lower costs and greater affordability. My more direct answer is that some of these things are happening already through the government. Next year, there will be drug price reductions for the medications administered in doctor's offices, when the prices in 2023 rose faster than inflation. And we're beginning to see tighter regulations through the Department of Justice around mergers and acquisitions of hospitals. And likely, we're going to see further restrictions around private equity. But having said that, there is a lurking danger. When costs rise rapidly and become unaffordable, there's always the threat that rationing will be introduced. And that's never good for people's health.
0: What causes you concern regarding American healthcare going into 2024?
1: Jeremy, there are three things that I find very worrisome. The first, as we just discussed, is the cost of healthcare, which is rapidly becoming impossible to sustain. Federal actuaries have estimated that costs will increase by $3 trillion from now until 2031. And that's, it's just not possible. As you know, I've written about shrinkflation, ways that inflation is slowed by restricting medical care without it overtly being said. A great example are high-deductible health plans that have out-of-pocket costs beyond what half of all Americans can afford. And we're likely to see more of these sub-Rosa solutions implemented by payers and insurers. The second are restrictions on a woman's right to manage her health. Ever since the passage of Roe, decisions about medical care for women have been a private matter between a doctor and a patient. With the new Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision, that has changed in close to half of states. This spring, the justices are scheduled to hear an immensely contentious case on the drug MUFU The traditional method for performing an abortion was a surgical procedure, but today more than half of all pregnancy terminations are accomplished using medication. The best approach is a combination of two drugs, including MUFU It's been prescribed for over 5 million women since the year 2000 with an excellent patient safety record. Despite this result, anti-abortion groups have questioned the original decision by the FDA, and some of the modifications which have been made around the use of this medication. Opponents of abortion have pushed to shore the time it can be administered from 10 to seven weeks after conception and to prevent distribution of this medication by mail. Moreover, they want to require three in-person visits with a doctor, which is an arduous requirement for many women, based only on the current challenges physicians could still prescribe the other drug used, but it alone is less effective than the combination. And furthermore, most doctors fear that the current court case is only the first of what will be multiple attempts to restrict or even prohibit completely abortion access everywhere in the United States. As part of this decision, there's even a more or an equally problematic aspect Asking the courts to overturn decisions by the clinical experts in the FDA would be radical. And it would open other lawsuits and battles for well-established medications, such as birth control pills, based upon hypothetical clinical concerns. And the third and final thing I worry about is the burnout that's happening in American healthcare today. And the fact that we may be focusing on the wrong reason that it is expanding. Doctors view the biggest contributors to the problem as the bureaucratic tasks they must do. This includes obtaining prior authorization, using clunky electronic health records that were created for billing and claims, and the volume of patients they end up seeing each day. But research published in 2023 showed that rather than burnout being a distinctly American problem, which these other associated contributors are, that burnout is a global phenomenon among peer nations, including places like Australia, Germany, Canada, and France. In medicine, if you make a wrong decision, treatment rarely works. And I worry that the same will be true relative to burnout. Looking at the global nature of burnout, I think it reflects the growing incidence of chronic diseases and how much more time it requires to care for people with them. As such, Unless our nation can reduce the prevalence of chronic diseases, I fear that rather than improving, burnout will become even more common in
0: 2024. Are there any new technologies or breakthroughs that you're looking forward to in 2024?
1: Jeremy, I think most of the positives will build on the advances of this past year. Having approved CRISPR for one variant of sickle cell disease, approval for other variants, and for other... Inherited diseases are likely to follow. We can expect OpenAI to release its next version of ChatGPT sometime in the year to come. And we can expect it will be twice as powerful as the current one, GPT-4. We should expect that there will be more new drugs for weight loss, which I'm hoping could include a pill. And the mRNA technology that was used to create the COVID-19 vaccines It will be applied to treating additional viruses and potentially even cancers. How many of these advances will materialize and come to market in 2024 versus 2025 or even 2026? That's unclear. But in the year to come, pharmaceutical companies will be working on all of these major opportunities.
0: Do you think next year at this time, we'll still be talking about AI the same as today? Will healthcare organizations be as slow to adapt this technology as they were other technologies?
1: My answer is no. We'll not be still talking about it in the same way. We'll be talking about it ever more. Generative AI will impact our lives in far greater ways, and that will include healthcare. And the big difference between this technology and the ones from the past is that ChatGPT and the other applications, they don't require healthcare organizations to lead the way. Patients can take their symptoms, put them into CHAT-GPT, and get a diagnosis and treatment plan. Of course, they can't currently prescribe their own medications, but they can let their doctors know the results and hopefully speed up the care process. And over time, I'm optimistic the generative AI technology will empower patients. It will alter the doctor-patient relationship in positive ways, and it will lead to better health. I predict that 2024 will be a big step in that direction.
0: With 2024 being a presidential election year and COVID 19 mostly in the rearview mirror, what healthcare issues do you think voters and candidates will focus on as we get closer to November?
1: The two biggest healthcare issues will be affordability and abortion. Both will be contentious. The affordability question will pit voters who are having to pay the ever higher costs against lobbyists from the drug hospital and physician specialty organizations. Candidates will voice their outrage, but I worry that they'll continue to accept the very generous campaign contributions with the unspoken but clearly present quid pro quo. Abortion will be somewhat different. He'll have elected officials who want to limit or ban access battling voters 70 percent of whom favor a woman's right to make decisions about her own health and much of the action will be inside states with voters passing constitutional changes guaranteeing the right to have an abortion over the resistance of state legislatures of course the battle over abortion medication that we discussed earlier will raise the intensity with the supreme court ruling likely to be sometime this
0: June. As one of the most respected healthcare leaders and experts in the country, if one of the presidential candidates asked you to help build out their healthcare agenda for their next presidential term, what would you propose to them? As you know, Jeremy, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I don't think change comes in
1: healthcare because it's, quote, the right thing to do or because it must happen. Instead, I think it it occurs for economic reasons. So much of what is responsible for the Amer- failures of the American healthcare system can be traced back to the financial factors. To that extent, I'd focus on three sets of opportunities. First, I'd encourage Congress to allocate dollars to increase the number of primary care physicians that we train in the United States. Congress funds the training process through Medicare reimbursement. Primary care is the foundation of medicine. Unless we can control chronic disease, the cost of healthcare in the United States will bankrupt our country and bankrupt even more Americans. The second thing I do is look for opportunities to encourage capitation. As Charlie Munger, the long-term associate of Warren Buffett said, tell me your incentives and I'll tell you how you're going to act. And in that way, if we want clinicians to focus on prevention, avoidance of complications from chronic disease, to eliminate preventable medical errors, we have to make sure that the economic system, the financial underpinnings of American healthcare, align with that direction. And today they do not. But a decapitated system, the best way to be able to be financially successful is to help patients be maximally healthy, and that would be great for our country. Finally, I'll double down on drug costs. And if the courts decide to limit the ability of the government to negotiate drug prices, then I'd ask Congress to create a branch of the NIH, the National Institute of Health, which would focus on the development of affordable medications at prices that people can afford to pay. You know, Jeremy, over 95% of new drugs is research done on the federal grants. It's time taxpayers benefited financially from these investments that are, that are accomplished using their money.
0: Do you think those proposed changes are realistic with the massive influence and in lobbying power of the healthcare industry on government, so against major change?
1: I believe that they are hard, but they are realistic already Congress funds resident education and almost no one would oppose increasing primary care access. I also think that capitation could be expanded through Medicare Advantage. It wouldn't be politically controversial, but it wouldn't be a direct threat to the incumbents. And finally, drug companies would hate my proposal, but the idea of the pharmaceutical industry freeloading off of taxpayers, that would be hard for politicians to defend. The government could decide that when it allows drug companies to use the patents generated by federally subsidized research, that in return, the companies would have to agree to price negotiation. As bitter of a pill as that would be, the alternative would
0: be much worse. As you pointed out, healthcare costs are increasing exponentially. Most bankruptcies in the U.S. are due to medical bills someone cannot afford. Do you see this trend continuing to get worse in 2024? Uh, can anything realistically be done to reverse this trend, or will healthcare costs continue to spiral further and further out of control?
1: Jeremy, I see all of these pieces tying together. And when I look for the common source of the difficulty, I perceive FIFA service as the villain. When you have providers deciding what diagnostic tests and treatments to offer, patients relatively protected by insurance from the biggest healthcare costs. And exorbitant pricing, secondary to the conglomerate of monopolies happening for hospitals, drug companies, and private equity owned medical doctor groups, you have a guarantee of ever higher costs going forward. As we just discussed, the only solution would be to move from fee for service to capitation at the delivery system level with guarantees for patients around access and quality outcomes. I believe not only would this improve clinical results but it also would eliminate many of the frustrations doctors experience, including prior authorization, the computer systems programmed around revenue generation, and the resulting necessity to see more patients in a day than humanly possible. The system is broken. Hopefully in 2024, we'll take a step to a better outcome both for providers of care and its recipients.
0: Staffing shortages have been a major issue in the U.S. for the last couple of years. I know this is a problem that hit the healthcare industry particularly hard. We're always hearing about nursing shortages or primary care physician shortages or hospital staffing shortages. Uh, What are the underlying reasons for the staffing shortage in healthcare and what can be done to fix it?
1: Jeremy, as you know, healthcare is one of the most people-intensive industries that exists and salaries are high with training periods long compared to just about any other field. Given the proliferation of chronic disease, I fear there was no way to resolve the current shortages just by training and hiring more people. And even if it were possible, the costs would be prohibitive. I do separate the issues for doctors and nurses, however. Relative to physicians, I believe we have enough people, but they're maldistributed. We train too many specialists and not enough primary care. But of course, when I say that, I mean assuming that medical care becomes more efficient and effective. But these things could be done while we train more doctors in primary care. The nursing challenge is more difficult because the training model for bedside medicine is so labor intensive. And as a result, we currently train too few nurses a year. And we're also too restrictive on immigration policy. Technology can help to solve both difficulties. For doctors, it will be by empowering patients to stay healthier and helping them to address and allowing them to address problems that today require a clinician. For nurses, it will be using technology to do the type of ongoing evaluation of inpatients, which currently depend on people. But the real solution to both is by keeping Americans healthier. And the best way to accomplish a shortage of supply is by reducing demand. And in medicine, the best way to accomplish that is by avoiding chronic disease and eliminating or minimizing its complications
0: in the first place. The COVID-19 pandemic forced the widespread adaptation of telehealth, technology that is standard and has been in almost every other consumer-facing industry for quite some time. Has the popularization of telehealth stuck around, or now that COVID-19 is mostly behind us, has our nation gone back to the pre-COVID-19 status quo?
1: As you note, prior to COVID-19, telemedicine accounted for only one to 2% of visits. At the peak of the pandemic, that rose to 69%, but now it's dropped back down to under 10%, with most of the use being in the mental health arena. The reasons are multiple. There's the economics of a virtual visit being remunerated at a lower rate than one which is in person. Then there are the cultural issues, which elevate the doctor's office as the best place to provide medical care, even when it's very inconvenient for patients and with no better outcomes. And finally, there's inertia. It's just easier to give care in the office with all of your staff at your disposal. But even beyond what was done during COVID, there are huge opportunities being missed. One example is at night on weekends, In the middle of the night and on weekends, patients needing medical care usually hear a recorded message when they telephone to their doctor's office. If this is a medical emergency, please hang up and dial 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. This impersonal message leaves sick callers and worried patients and worried parents with a difficult decision. Do I drive to the ER and lose a night of sleep or chance it and wait until morning to call my doctor's office? Those who drive to the ER will endure a two hour wait on average along with duplicate testing and wildly inflated prices. ER services are 12 times as expensive as going to a physician's office and waste more than $32 billion each year, according to an analysis by the United Healthcare Group. The reality is that many patients who go to the ER after hours, they don't require emergency services. They just go because they don't have any other alternative. Technology can solve the patient's needs without overwhelming doctors. Kaiser Permanente members of Virginia, Maryland, and Washington, D.C., can access 24 by 7 video health center expertise that connects them with a doctor who can quickly assess the problem and offer guidance. The doctor determines that the patient has a life-threatening problem. She tells the patient to go to the ER, sending the relevant medical information ahead to reduce the risk of complications. But 60% of the time, telemedicine physicians not only address the person's anxiety, but also resolve the clinical problem. In the future, ChatGPT will assist them in this pursuit. And similarly, patients find it inconvenient to get specialty care when it's needed. It would be optimal if their problems could be solved when they were still in the primary care physician's office. And at least 40% of the time, that could happen. Often primary care physicians have 95% of the expertise needed to accurately diagnose and treat a problem, but there's no way to obtain the other 5%. And without that 5%, their only option is to make a referral for an in person specialty consultation, leading to treatment delays and higher costs. Waiting lists for specialist appointments can be long. For example, even before the pandemic, patients in the United States often had to wait weeks or months to see a dermatologist. At Kaiser Permanente, primary care physicians routinely use telemedicine to consult dermatologists while the patient is still in the exam room. Patients leave with a confirmed diagnosis, a treatment plan, and a prescription. Some 70% of KP patients who visited their primary care doctor with a difficult-to-diagnose rash have had their problems resolved in less than 10 minutes via telemedicine. And ChatGPT will support this type of highly efficient and convenient healthcare solution as well. When technology makes care more convenient for patients, but it doesn't guarantee or generate More income for doctors and hospitals in the United States today, it's rarely embraced.
0: The pandemic put a spotlight on the mental health crisis, how little is being done to address it and the stigma around it. Where are we at as a nation relative to addressing mental health, and do you see any positive changes happening soon?
1: Jeremy, as a nation, we are far from where we need to be. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, the mental health issues are growing year by year, and now we find ourselves without enough therapists. And find it difficult for people to get the help they require. I'm optimistic that technology will be a powerful tool. Like a therapist, large language models like ChatGPT have the ability to recognize what patients are saying and respond appropriately once they are trained. Major progress is already happening in developing this technology. A positive step would be to grant interstate licensing for therapists of interest when individuals wanting to join the bar after law school, score high enough for national licensing exams, they're now being licensed in just about every state. And given how different legal statutes are state by state, while the physiology of people and the outcomes of medications and treatments are identical, a similar solution in healthcare, allowing individual physicians to be licensed in all parts of our country, would be very positive and a way to offer mental health services to people across the United States, particularly in communities where there's insufficient numbers of providers. Of course, doing this would be financially negative for states and for their regulatory bodies. So unfortunately, Jeremy, I doubt that this problem will be solved over the next 12 months.
0: Since we're in the holiday season, it's always important to be thankful for some positive things in your life. Robbie, I've always wondered, who would you say has had the biggest positive impact on your career and why? Jeremy, as you imply,
1: I've had great mentors along the way, including several doctors from medical school and even more in my residency training. They instilled a love of medicine, a passion for excellence, and a commitment to mission and purpose. Ultimately, it was on a volunteer trip with Dr. Donald Laub, the chairman of the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, that we took to Mexico to repair the cleft lip and cleft palates of children born with these defects. And that experience led me to choose plastic and reconstructive surgery for my career. The ability to change a child's life for the betterment and restored dignity was an opportunity to which I was drawn. And after that trip, I just couldn't say no to becoming a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. It was one of the best decisions of my
0: life. Robbie, do you have any final thoughts as we head into 2024? Jeremy, I'm profoundly grateful to our listeners and the incredible
1: questions they send us every week and sent to us across all of 2023. With the new year upon us, I'd like to ask each of them to tell three friends about the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I'm a firm believer that the broader the conversation and the greater the diversity of opinion, the sooner we will once again make American healthcare the best in the world. I'd like to wish all of our listeners a happy new year a time of peace,
0: fulfillment, and health. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and will tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.